Welcome to the DGR podcast. I'm your host, David Gray. Hello, everyone. Chris here. Welcome back to the DGR podcast. This is episode number 61. David and Kira are currently in Bondi Beach and have just finished a really successful Melbourne workshop. There was a couple of tickets left for the second weekend of the Sydney workshop. So if you're in the area, you should really jump on board. Today, we have another great podcast with a great guest, Jason St. Clair. Jason is a fantastic clinician. He works with a lot of runners, and that's kind of what David and Jason speak about today. His assessment for runners, treatment for runners, Achilles, knees, what Jason is looking for and what he uses and everything in that realm. So without further ado, enjoy the podcast. So uh, here we go, Jason. How are you? Thanks for joining me. Thank you, David. I appreciate this opportunity, man. You're welcome, man. I'm looking forward to the chat. I think we're going to chat about, um, I think you said you work with lots of mostly runners. Is that right? Or not mostly, but a lot of runners at least. Yeah, I do. I work with a lot of endurance runners Mm -hmm. and I've started coaching the past couple of years, a local youth uh, through 18 years of age, cross country track and field. And so I've, I've been seeing some um, sprinters and linear things too, but definitely more biased towards the the distance. Cool. I didn't know that. What made you um, get into the coaching side? I've always had a passion for coaching and this opportunity came up. We have a very big youth program in the, in the kind of suburb of Charleston that we live in. And I simply just asked the coach if she needed help. And the first year I was just kind of you know, stood by, helped, and then the, every year just took on a little bit more responsibility. And I just, I don't know, I've just always loved it. Seeing the kids, any athlete, in, in their element outside of, of injury mm-hmm. and as a group, the dynamic, I just missed it a lot. And so, yeah, I've been thinking about, I genuinely, I've been thinking for probably four years, it's been on my mind because we have a, we have a track club um track and field like athletics is not huge in ireland but we have like a lot like you guys obviously have we have a lot of team sports and stuff but i think in the states track and field is a big thing because it's in every high school it's in um it's there's big collegiate programs with track and field it's not as big here although it is getting bigger um and it's been helped but there is a there is a couple of athletes very local to me literally they train 10 minutes away and they are like european level athletes in in a couple of different um and a couple of different um uh 400 meters i think 200 meters 100 meters and i've been thinking about like just volunteering my time down there just just to like just to see it for a while not even just go in as a complete beginner or not say anything to any coach because obviously yeah. they know way more than me and just see what I could learn. I think it would be very beneficial. Yeah, that's kind of how I started too. So I ran one year of college track and that I feel like I learned a lot, but that was 20 years ago and far before mm-hmm. any of my formal education. But I wanted to just go and learn how they did because I see a lot of high school athletes come through my doors once they're injured. And I, I see their programming and stuff, but I really wanted to get an idea of what it looked like in person. Yeah. And it's been pretty eye opening in, in, in a lot of ways, um, just watching lots of different ways people move and 
uh, how they're coached and um, the drills they choose. It, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. What do you think? What, do you think they're doing a good job? I think they're, when you have a large group of people, I think it becomes difficult to, to see individuals uh, like their needs, if you will, and address those. And the larger the group, I think the more difficult it is. And so it really was kind of eye-opening in that aspect, just uh, just trying to coach that many people yeah. of like strategies, like a, for a race is difficult, let alone if they have, you know, some, some niggles creep up like knee pains and stuff, it, then it's really, it's just hard. But I think, I've, you know, I think I've realized it, oh, you don't, need to intervene probably as much as you think you do. Um, as far like p- these people who are really into injury prevention, just let people move, but also seeing how people com- who are competing in the same events, how different they can really be. Mm-hmm. And yet we want to train them in the exact same way. Yeah. And that's been really nice to see. I'm like, okay, this is a, definitely a room for improvement here. Yeah. I've 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 found that from being exposed to different sports in the last few years and different athletes. Just at the online space allowed me to do that. Just work online with different athletes from sports that I wouldn't have had much exposure to. And you see how structurally, just how different they are and why they're doing the sport that they're doing. And um, that's been that's that's been a, a big eye opener for me as well, definitely. And I think what you're saying with the team, like with are not teams, but with groups of athletes. There is a lot of um, there is a lot of like online. You see a lot of shade being thrown at people doing sprint drills and like skipping drills or different 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 drills, and they're saying that doesn't make people faster. I don't think it. I don't think it's necessarily designed to make people faster all of the time. It's it's a nice. It can be. It can be. A no, and I have my criticisms as well. But they all these drills and stuff. They can be a nice way of one you're just getting athletes nice and warm two in a structured way where they're all they're all doing similar things you're teaching a little bit of rhythm you're teaching you're getting some like plyometric ability in there along the way but there's also like a standard to work towards which is like you know you can easily put two athletes beside each other and say that person looks better than that person so you can you can you can get them to move towards that but then i think maybe when they get to the 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 very top level athletes and they're still doing the same a skips and b skips and whatever other drills 20 years later maybe that's where they should be maybe moving on from that stuff but i definitely think with you athletes teaching them some of that stuff especially as a group can be i think i think can be important and i think can be valuable even if other people don't necessarily agree I a hundred percent agree. The amount of kids that just have really, they struggle to skip of any Mm -hmm. kind. Um, And so I think those, you can call them foundational, but just, just teaching any kind of skills that are rhythmic coordinative, I think at that younger level, and it kind of gives them when there is a big group, it kind of they're all talking to each other and doing their thing, but it gives them something to focus on where they yeah. where they have to maybe they're still talking to their friend but now they have to coordinate this motor pattern and i think that is good but yeah when you see like these highly advanced athletes still doing them i'm like okay now what is it that you're trying to elicit with this person like are you just trying to distract them from their mm-hmm. race worries or what are you doing 
<laughs> yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's still a good warm up, and like the some people that some people that criticize some of those drills will still use low level plyometric exercises to get someone warm. So like you're getting a, you're getting some of that in those drills anyway. You're getting a little pop, a little bit of rhythm. You're getting athletes to maybe tune in, but at some stage it does. It, it probably does just become a cho- like a choreographed dance that I've learned that dance a long time ago, and now my brain is just on autopilot as it goes through it. So, um, so yeah. What um, what's the difference with um the recreational runners then? You see, you see, so you're seeing like young athletes that are training there, and then you're seeing a lot of recreational runners that are coming in your doors, maybe injured. Um, what are they? What's the most common injuries that they're coming in with? Yeah, so I see anywhere the, the people who come in for rehab are mostly, I'd say, high school on up. So uh, through, you know, master levels, uh, runners. And so it's always, you know, lower body injuries for the most part, or maybe some low back pain, but say tendinopathies like uh, of the patella or the Achilles. Um, fortunately, I don't see a ton of stretch fractures yeah. and that's good. It's soft. yeah I know, I know they're nasty yeah it's not a fun process for anyone but um I have seen them but the majority of it is is soft tissue and I would say tendon related mm-hmm. type of stuff yeah and assessment wise what are you what are you looking at there are you first like are you are you when someone comes in like are you I presume with a tendinopathy you're first thinking like okay how much load are they doing but Move, movement assessment wise what what are you looking at for these lower limb issues so initially i'm i'm looking at kind of what they're doing what their goals are and how how quickly those goals need to happen and that kind of tells me how how soon can we um like can we take the long term approach right away or do we need to do something in the short term to get them through uh, yeah. this race that's coming up and and that's a very real thing you know mm-hmm. people come a lot of times my the first visit i see with people is they'll call me because they're freaking out three weeks before a race and and they want to you know they've invested all this time money and effort so they're like how do i get through it but so if if that is the case then the first thing i do is try to figure out what is modifiable in the short term with their training and how can we get them to either perform well through it or at least perform to to an extent where they would be comfortable and have that difficult discussion, if not of, you know, pulling back and switching mm-hmm. on. For the people who have the a longer term approach, it's it's a lot easier because then you get to look at what they're where they are in their training, what they've been doing from a strength side of things as as well as they're running and cross training. And I think you just have a lot better shot at, at being successful. <laughs> I think so too. The short-term stuff can be fun as well, because yeah, yeah. a lot of the time, and I think you can learn a lot from those people because a lot, a lot of the time they've kind of accepted I'm in trouble here. I have a race in two weeks time or 10 days time or one week, like a 5k that I've signed up for. And my knee is, my knee is really struggling, blah, blah, blah. And actually that's where like, because even with the people that you think is, okay, these are going to take lot, these are going to be long-term clients that we need to go through all of these things. Sometimes you get a quick fix with them and they're fine. Yes. So like people like sometimes slate or 
like demean quick fixes i can't see why you wouldn't try to have a quick fix with someone but you just don't maybe tell them that you're you're like okay i'm looking for something that i might do and that's where i do think that because in in a one week's time they have a race you're not going to be able to like do a huge amount with their load or a ton of you're not going to build strength in that in that amount of time but actually that's where your biomechanical knowledge can come in quite well because it's like okay i'm not going to make you stronger and be able to offload the load that your body is experiencing in that short amount of time but it can offload it maybe in in a different way by opening up some space in certain areas so that's why I love them types of cases. And usually they're like, yep, let's try it because we've nothing to lose. Yeah, I think people often say that about short-term fix. I'm always, when somebody comes in the door looking for the short-term win, number Mm -hmm. one, it shows it gets buy-in. And number two, you're not sure how long it's going to last. You know, sometimes, like you said, those short-term fixes are, you know, it buys them weeks and weeks and weeks and, and they actually never get back to that level of severity where they were. I had a client a couple she was training for the new york marathon and she was like four weeks three weeks out and had had this kind of lingering glute thing happening and was seeing pt it wasn't working she came in and we did like we modified her symptoms right in that in that session and so i think the symptom modification part went really really well and then able to like you said we we gave her just a few strategies to work on you know, throughout the day gave her like frequency. It was low, mm-hmm. low intensity, but we did it frequently and she ended up crushing her race manage and she was super stoked. Yeah. And so that did feel good. <laughs> that was a beautiful thing. It happened to me like with my Achilles before. I remember I was really struggling with my Achilles when I was playing football. This was like maybe eight years ago, probably. And I went, I heard about a girl that was about an hour from us and she did try needling and not many people did it at the time. They did a little bit, but she, I actually look back now and it's like, she did it in a very negligent way. She, she had me on the table for an hour and she needled my calf for a full hour as hard as possible. And there was not like a quote unquote trigger point left in my entire body after it. She stabbed me to death and I could hardly, I could hardly, um, I could hardly drive home after it. I had to stop in the shop and take painkillers and stuff like that. And I went another time to her a couple of years later and I remembered like how much agony I was in. And I remembered, okay, I knew I'm going to need painkillers to drive home here. And I, I did. Um, so that is like not something I would recommend, but guess what? My Achilles pain was gone for like three months. Nice. <laughs> I think maybe she just like shut off everything to that area of my body right. or something. But, um, we all have, or a lot of people have stories where like, and I, I do shit on manual therapy a lot, even though I, I think it's beneficial. I just don't like people who only do that and think like this is the, the cure to everything. But we all have stories where like you got a bit of manual therapy and your your issue is gone forever. For And yeah. I don't know how to explain that. Is it placebo? Is it not? But it, it does work sometimes. Yeah, I don't know how to explain it either. And I've spent an entire two year after PT school like getting trained in and really man a lot of manual therapy that was the umbrella it was under and I, if anything it made me try to to want to use it very effectively knowing that we're that i'm not going to know the exact mechanism that helps this person mm-hmm. and so if i don't know the mechanism then i'm gonna i'm certainly not going to want to spend a lot of time doing it um during each session i mean mm-hmm. and i wanted to try to to find the ones that seem to get me a lot of change quickly. 
for that same reason we talked about earlier, like you get, you kind of get that buy-in. And -hmm. so that's really where I've taken my manual therapy. Some people hate on, on dry needling and I get it, man. You look at the research and it's, it's really not convincing. Mm -hmm. You can argue is, is even if a trigger point is, is a real thing, but (laughs) yeah, but I do know that I've had people who get diagnosed and have Achilles tendinopathy for months, for months. And I'll get in there one time. And it could, again, I don't know the mechanism why this works, but one time I reproduce their symptoms with me palpating their actual muscle belly, not the tendon, Mm -hmm. needle it. And, you know, they have a significant reduction in their symptoms. Maybe they come in one more time and it doesn't change what I do with their loading. I still would, would manage their loading part of the, their program. Mm-hmm. But as far as managing their symptoms, does that help take it from this reactive state down? I don't know, but. Yeah, but it does. It, 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 I think it does a lot of the time. It just, you can't bank on that. You have to do the stuff that you know is going to work, but will also take more time, which is usually not no is going to work, but it's usually the, the, the it's usually strength training and it's usually managing the load and it's not Absolutely. that you it's not that you're certain it's going to work it's just like you are sure that you're going to get certain adaptations and even if you didn't have Achilles issues maybe I'd want you to have stronger calves anyway so let's just move in this direction but um do you think do you think there's what do you think about the the kind of thought process out there now that there's more there there's no like skilled practitioners necessarily in manual therapy. Like it's all the same and everything that deli- everyone delivers it is the same and people can't, you can't maybe put people on a pedestal and say this person, cause there is people telling courses where it's like, you have to do it in this way. Um, but I'm not so sure that. Do, do you think there's better and worse manual therapists out there? I, I think there are people I think the question that people should ask with any manual therapy is what are you trying to get out of it? And if you're trying to get out of it a short term, like pain modifier, then yes, I do think some people are better than others. I think some people um, I've been trained with, I, I don't use it a lot, but I've been trained with high velocity manipulation of the spine from many, many, many people. And I can tell you that if I get, um, like I learned from Gibbons and Tehan in Australia, I believe, and, and they're fabulous. They're all about it being comfortable. If it's not comfortable, don't do it. And when I get manipulate, mani- manipulated like that, I, it feels really good. So if the goal is to feel good and, you know, be able to turn my neck, that's the one I want. Mm-hmm. Um, but I understand the argument that it's all kind of nonspecific mm-hmm. and, it, it, you know, it all kind of works the same and you can't say you're moving this level. And I'm like, well, that's not really my goal. I don't really care if I'm moving C3, C4 or because that's, that's not the question that I was asking in the first place. The question I was asking in the first place was, can I help this person turn their head to the right because they're struggling to turn their head to the right? Yes. And how do I do that in the most comfortable manner so that they're not scared? Yeah. Yeah, I'm with in that you. regard. I do think. Yeah, I think. no, I no, I think that's a really, really, really good answer. Actually, really good answer. And the way I think of that is because I, I think, and again, this is coming from me, someone who's like, has been. I have been relatively vocal against manual therapy a little on a few occasions. But sure. if if you just on a very basic level, if you just go into 
massage therapist you're like okay i just want to chill out i want to relax i want to get a nice massage and you go into a nice massage therapist uh, or a massage therapist and and you have someone and it feels really good versus saying okay i'm not going to go into a massage therapist i'm going to go to, to a guy who's a lumberjack who's never massaged someone in his life and he's going to put hands on me and do stuff it's probably not going to feel as good i'm probably not going to feel as relaxed after it and like that shouldn't be that much of a reach to say that. And I do think the there I do think there is a skill to the 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 pressure that someone uses or like how relaxed they make you feel. And of course there's of course there can be placebo and all these things associated with that, but that is the same with every single treatment that we ever do, regardless of if it's exercise or not, I think, or education or manual therapy or not. So I think the skill for, for high velocity, I don't think it's like a clinical reasoning skill per se, like, a. Uh, I think it's more like the technique itself of a high, high velocity mm-hmm. uh, is more like a psycho motor skill where you just like, you know, just getting good at it. So again, that it feels comfortable, but with my goal being to, to just help somebody feel better after it's done. Yeah. And then that's only, and I think where we really run into problem as a whole is like how much of your treatment is that? Cause for me, that may be like five minutes, you know, and yeah. then I'm totally moving on to exercise. Mm-hmm. Whereas people are manual therapists and that is the treatment. I mean, I had a guy this week who came in, was getting treatment for eight months and they never did one exercise. It was yeah. all dry needling, passive modalities. And then I think, you know, that, that's a problem. That's a problem. Yeah, that's a problem. problem. That's a problem. I had a, I know there's a physiotherapy clinic relatively close to me. I had a guy come to me with, um, it was was about three years ago and I think it was, yeah, he had an elbow issue. He had like medial epicondylitis or something. And the guy, the guy in the clinic had got a new like cryo gun or something. And he spent eight sessions just like putting the cryo gun on, on the guy's elbow and never gave him an exercise. And this was supposed to be one of the best physiotherapists in Ireland. So I was just like, the guy was like, the the, the client came into me and and I don't, I don't, I don't ever get in conversations about what previous people do as in that was good or bad, but he was like, I've done, I've tried everything to get rid of this. I I was with him for, for two months and blah, blah, blah. I was like, genuinely, I wouldn't expect that to work. Like it just just doesn't make sense to me why that would, why that would have helped you in anything other than short-term relief and you haven't tried exercise so let's try exercise yeah i know i I always ask the question like well what do you think that they they were trying to accomplish Mm -hmm. what do you think they were actually trying to to change um because the person usually knows that okay well if i think about that (laughs) yeah they don't think about it though they don't they they don't tend to ask themselves that question no maybe that's because yeah maybe because that's the physio or whoever it is 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 an authority in their eyes which they are but yeah. yeah, a lot of a lot of people don't actually think logically about those things. And maybe that's pain. Pain takes away your ability to think logically, certainly about your own body. Um, but maybe if their friend went to that same physio and they came back and said, I've done eight sessions where they just put ice on me, they would probably think that sounds a bit funny. <laughs> would that yeah. would that really would you really expect that to work? So yeah. I don't know. I don't know what. Um. So go go on. Tell me a bit more about your assessment then with our with runners. Oh, so let's take, let's take someone longer term. They've been struggling for quite yeah. a while. They have a bit of time to to build things back up. 
So if it's, you know, I usually start kind of break mine down into where I'm looking at uh, like range of motion. So I have some things that I put in that bucket and then I have some things that I put in like a movement coordination type of bucket. And then I have um, things that I would put in like this kind of force bucket, which would be, you know, anything ranging from just like local strength of a muscle, like a calf to being able to, uh, you know, maximum, what is their max load with a split squat, um, all the way to reactive force. Like if they need to, I mean, obviously they need to be doing plyometrics mm-hmm. and I just try to find the, the gaps or the things that, that tend to show up again and again throughout that process and match it to whatever the issue that they're having, which is typically pain with running. And, and we, and we go from there. It's not super complicated, but (laughs) yeah, it doesn't, I don't think it has to be. Do you, um, do you ever look at people's gait? Yes. So I look at every runner who comes in, I look at, I watch them walk and then I also will watch them run. Usually I'll put, at some point, watching people run, I I get it. I'm not a huge fan of running analysis, like people who do these running analysis analysis, um, as a service. And so, because I think you you can just really get in people's head and and wreck them. But I do, not necessarily on the first session, but I'll get some sort of video of of them running, just so, again, so I can compare that with the other tests that I do. So, if, if ro- let's just say standing rotation is something that is limited and, you know, when they do it, they're getting this hip pinch that they also experience while they're running. Yeah. And then, it, and then I match it up to watching them run. Then that kind of, to me tells a story that, okay, let's address it, mm-hmm. but I'm not gonna, you know, tell them to uh, take steps wider and all these mm-hmm. other, cues, right. That, that sometimes people come away with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I try. I try my best to not cue someone's gait almost yeah. ever. Um, now I do work with some healthy athletes and stuff like that, and we will look at their gait, and then there might be some cues that we can use. But I, to be honest, I genuinely do feel, and I feel strongly about this that gait will clean up or will change in front of your eyes when you give the, the give the local tissue or the area or the coordination or whatever it needs um you just give them back the ability to access something that they don't have and i, I see plugging back into their body immediately and 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 not just not just acutely but it, it changes for as long as they keep that area doing what it needs to do I see, I see a change and actually I don't see how it couldn't change to be honest, if the body hasn't been sensed in an area and hasn't been able to maybe open up a hip or has no internal rotation. When you, when you give them back that I, I genuinely, I don't have data to back it up, but I genuinely do see that changing quite quickly. Yeah. And I think a lot of times they feel it too. Like they, they notice there's at least the people, a lot of people I see um, if, if it's not like this big acute pain, they'll, they'll because that is obvious whenever you change that yeah but these things are like oh wow that does that feels different i feel a little springier i feel um better as Mm -hmm. i go hey guys chris again quick break from the podcast to remind you that david's foot and achilles rehab program is available 750 people have already got it it is four phases of world-class foot and lower leg training and if you haven't got it yet you really should jump on board it is the first link in david's bio or you can find it in the show notes below. 
back to the pod. Do you um do you have much crossover with Katie? Yeah, I, I have crossover with Katie. She um will send me a message like a five minutes before a session and say, Hey, can you come look at this? <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, we, we do, we cross over a lot. And I'd say the biggest thing with Katie, my wife, Katie, who most people know a lot more than me is that I really try to understand, you know, her lens and perspective that she comes from so that I can integrate it with, um, anybody who I might see that, that she is also working with. Mm-hmm. And I do that with everyone, right? Like I, I, that's the whole purpose of me wanting to understand another, uh, practitioner's lens is so that I can then use it. If, if I'm mm-hmm. involved in that person's care, so I know, know what they did, mm-hmm. um, wh- whether I find it useful or not. So that part has been really helpful for me is, is my point in, in the crossover. Like, if I know how she's thinking about things and then I can get on board with thinking about them similarly, yeah. then we can really use our strengths to come together. Yeah. If you were, if you were to, to assess a client together or no, if you were to get the same yeah. client, let's say you have, I'm sure you have, but if you were to take a client, actually not together, like the client comes into your room, does an assessment. The client goes into Katie's room, does an assessment, not let tell anyone anything. Um, I know the assessment will probably look very different, but do you think that the uh, do you think that the uh, clinical reasoning around what's going on or whatever or what you want to do would be much different? That's a tough question, I know, but it's a it is a tough I, I I'm enjoying asking that question. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think we would we would arrive to similar areas of that we would gravitate towards. Mm-hmm. Uh, the strategies would definitely be different. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely be different. And I, you know, I can't undo my, like my re my traditional rehab brain, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I don't bring focus on anything until I'm like really confident that it's, it's an issue. Right. Whereas Casey, Katie's a lot more fluid in her, in her process and she's willing to try things and see how it goes. And, and she's great at it. Like mm-hmm. fabulous. Whereas I like, I want to be like 90% sure that this is going to be something I'm going to want to work on before mm-hmm. I bring attention to it. Because if I bring attention to it, then they're like, okay. Yeah. 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 hundred <laughs> percent. But I think it's an interesting, what you're describing is like, it is an interesting thing that's happening in the industry at the moment where people are probably caught between thinking the way you're saying like that that kind of your rehab brain the way it's been programmed and then moving more into slightly into the unknown and thinking let's just see what happens kind of a thing and it is it is hard to navigate that especially as there's different models out there and you're learning different language and different things i don't think the language shouldn't necessarily make a huge difference but it is um it, it, it is tricky as we try to learn how the body like integrates more and more and how all these pieces of the puzzle affect each other. But then when you're working with someone who's in pain right in front of you, you definitely, yeah, not definitely, but you, you, you need to be as sure as you can with what you're going to do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You, you do. You do. <laughs> you, do. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I suppose it did look, I suppose it depends on the clients that you're attracting as well. And I suppose Katie, yeah. 
Katie is probably in a place where she's attracting a certain type of client or if she if she is working with people where they've seen the stuff that she, maybe she's done online and right. they're they're up for that. And I actually get a lot of that too as well now. I'm I'm I get like clients where I'm they're just like there's kind of a trust built because they've they've come to me from online, but I do have empathy for people because people sometimes ask me like even about the breathing work coaches and clinicians ask me like oh wh- what should I do because my clients are unsure about that um they 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 don't know if 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 that's going to help them and they don't understand why I would use that and I'm like honestly like maybe you shouldn't use it then yeah you know it's a tricky one there definitely is a part of of buying and there maybe it's a placebo thing as well where if they're not if they're if they're not if they're questioning it before you even start, then maybe you shouldn't. Maybe that's not something you should use. I I totally agree, especially for something. What are you trying? You know what what are you going to get out of that activity? Right, like, and I do. This is where, and I'm not bashing any systems. I've learned so many systems mm-hmm. and and take so many great things away. But I don't think that to to think that there's any one way or one path that people need to follow to get from point A to point B is, is pretty naive, number one, but number two, it's just not going to work. It doesn't mm-hmm. work in real life. Mm-hmm. So I think you, if you can take some of the concepts and then you can creatively apply them, if you, if you think they're important for this person um, and set them up differently in a way that's meaningful for that person, then so like a breathing activity, for example, like, well, does it, okay, does it have to be a breathing activity or are you just trying to position somebody so that their thorax is turning the opposite way? Cause it, if we're talking about the ladder, then let's just turn their thorax the opposite way and have them reach an arm and boom, mm-hmm. we've done it. I couldn't agree more. And even if it's a breathing activity and you don't necessarily want to just get them lying on the floor breathing, maybe you can just pair the breathing with any kind of other exercise where it's just snuck in along the way and sure. you don't actually ever have to cross the bridge of saying this is a breathing exercise yeah 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 so yeah. there's there's lots of ways of getting the results you want i think with people and it's just about i think it's just honestly about clinical reasoning and people haven't been probably taught to try and use their brain along the way because they've been taught a very a lot of people i mean but not not everyone but there has been a cookie cutter kind of a I think education out there and I think it's changing. I think it's slowly yeah, changing. I think so too. And I, I'm really bad about getting, I allow myself to always want to find a middle ground. Yeah. And so there are people who would, would say that none of it matters and people who would say, this is all that matters. And I want to be like, okay, well, all I truly care about are the people that I'm working with. So let's find what might matter yeah. and, and, and go with that. Right. Yeah. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Of course, <laughs> of course. And that, I don't. You said I'm, I'm really bad at that. I think, like, as in, you're really bad at maybe not going to either extreme. I think that's a skill of being able to stay somewhere in the middle. And the great thing with those people who go to the extremes is you can learn a ton from them, but you yeah. just don't have to be them. Yes. You yes. Know? You know. Sure. So I think because they're definitely a lot of those people. People are getting really good results with people. They're getting, yeah. they're getting results. So there's something to learn from them, but you just don't have to necessarily have your treatment to, to look like that or your coaching to look exactly like them. And the people that they're helping, you know, might not be the, the uh, similar, share a lot of similarities to the people that you're trying to help. So I always mm-hmm. try to keep that in line too. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me about uh, structuring a week for a runner then that's coming back. Um, 
in terms of let's even if you want to just take like an Achilles tendinopathy or something like that and I know it's going to be vague because it depends so much on the person but how do you go about structuring a week where you're not necessarily saying okay you're not allowed to run anymore but maybe you need to decrease the miles a little bit or the, the kilometers that you're that you're doing where do you fit in the rehab along the way um where do you fit in if you if you feel like they need some plyometric ability along the way and how do you keep them or do do you like to keep them running or do you like to to take that back um and you can just take a case that you've worked with recently or you can just speak kind of in general up to you okay i'll start in general and then if it brings me to a a case then Mm -hmm. then i'll go but i I, because first off i do not like taking run running away from runners it's it's too it's it's usually like a, a really big part of their life yeah. and it it just crushes um, to have them take away so unless it's something like a stress fracture um and even then you know if, if it's a high risk stress fracture then then obviously you have to take it away but otherwise try not to take it away so start there and then it just becomes a matter of figuring out um again where they are if they have a race coming up that would it certainly influence but let's just say they don't and they're just cruising along, running four or five days a week. Then I really just ask them what, you know, well, what, what amount would would make you happy, right? Like, what is your minimum amount? How many minimum days a week, minimum miles, whatever, would you be content with? Just generally speaking, so I get an idea, and then we kind of carry the conversation from there. If running is is the activity that is seems to be the the culprit at driving their symptoms, then I think it needs to at least be considered, right? Like as far, and, and from there, I'm, I, then I consider, is it the distance they're going? Is it like the overall volume or is it the, the pace they're going? Do, are they doing speed work mm-hmm. um, from there? And, and so we just, we, we tune that up. We fine tune it, right? Create a plan. And it's a, it's a flexible plan. Um, so say they were running four days a week and they were getting in maybe 20, 25 miles. Um, and we can cut that down by 25%. They're still happy, but it's significantly taken down their volume. Well, now we have a lot of room to to throw in some, some specific rehab stuff mm-hmm. as far as load. And if it's a tendon issue, then, then I'm really using, you know, not just how it's feeling during that session. I kind of still use that tendon continuum model where like, are we dealing with a reactive tendinopathy where we need to just kind of settle things down? Mm-hmm. Uh, or are we dealing with this, this more chronic issue where um, we, we need to look maybe a day or two later after the load and see how they've tolerated that. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I see a lot of those. I'll see people have been dealing with tendon, tendon stuff for over a year. Same. And yeah. And so I'm really looking at that next 24 hours like okay how, how did we do yeah do you think yeah. how 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 what would be your go-to in terms of rough go-to in terms of how many days a week then if, if you decide okay i'm gonna work on calf strength and maybe some isometrics are just 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 slow heavy heavy movement or whatever have you found like a nice sweet spot for, okay, I'm going to give you that three days a week on the days you don't run on the days you do run after running before running. What, what's your go-to at the moment there? I, I, my, my go-to at the moment, I, I truly still believe that a lot of the people I see just generally speaking have been 
um, kind of underloaded for, oh, even though they're running a lot, yeah. like in, in other aspects of their training life, they've been underloaded. And so I, I'm a little bit conservative with it. It's usually for me like two days a week. Yeah. And I just want to get a solid baseline because I'm not trying to crush them. I'm trying to see what we can get away with mm. um, more, more from the health side of, of things. Right. So it, it is isometrics a lot of times at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then from there, once I get a good idea of how the child, then I play with the intensity and maybe moving more towards like the plyometrics and stuff. But mm-hmm. I find a lot of runners don't need uh, too much plyos, especially when they're running at the, at, at the time. It, yes. it's quite, because you're going to be starting them off with extensive plyos usually obviously anyway and they actually seem to be getting a lot of that in their in their running and i find that for a lot of tendinopathies just just adding some good strength work and me my bias definitely is when you start to clean up the foot i see some weird and amazing things happen with achilles that have yeah. been loaded like that okay, we've done 12 months of calf strength and it hasn't helped. And it was just, it distributes the load in the foot differently and it goes away almost instantly a lot of the time, which I, I don't know what's exactly the, me- the mechanism is there. But, and I know a lot of the researchers would maybe say, maybe would say that was misdiagnosed as a tendinopathy if it cleaned, if it cleaned up like that. But it's like, you've seen 10 different physios and I'm certain that I'm certain that was a tendinopathy and now the foot stuff just cleaned it up. Um, but the plows yeah. is a tricky one to, to give to them because so, you probably need to decrease the, the running load to increase a little bit of plyo work. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I agree with you a hundred percent. And I use the, you had mentioned clean up the foot. And I was talking about this yesterday with, with a group of people where I use early on the, when, when I am prescribing a lot of isometrics, that's the time that I am trying to look really like above and below. So if there are things I can do with the foot while they're holding this isometric, if there are things I can do at the hip, the thorax, like this is the perfect time to put to, cause they're going to be holding the position, right? So this is really the perfect time to, to work on all of those things. And like you said, a lot of things clean, clean up just from that. Mm-hmm. And as I'm progressing them to the, to the plyometrics, I mean, I do think about extensive, but I also try to think about what maybe they don't have. So like if, right, if they don't have strength um, and that's what we're going to be working on. Well, I find that a lot of times they have trouble doing like say a pogo or an extensive, they have trouble keeping their heel off the ground. So, I find just kind of more like overcoming type of movements or concentric type of movements for those people mm-hmm. work really well. And some people, uh, I know you're uh, the plyo plus guy. I mean, he's obviously super massive with all of that. Like, you know, just things like in a broader um, brain. And I love that because it's, you know, yes, it, it's, it could be an extensive that they need, but you can, you can bias it so many different ways to give them something that they might not have. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I no longer just in like 30 second pogo. I'm like, yeah. okay, let's look and see what this pogo is and yeah, and what you're kind of missing. Cause too often I see even with like a calf raise, like I'll see him be able to come up the runner, come up on a calf raise with two two feet, and then you shift their weight over to one side and then they can't hold it. Like no. they they just drop. I'm like, yeah. okay, yes, this is strength thing, but that's gotta also be influencing your yeah, you know, your 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 spring 
Yeah, especially at that very top position of the calf yeah. is seemed to be weak. And that's, well, certainly for anyone with a previous rupture of the Achilles, they're just so hard to get that strength back at the, at the very top range. Um, even though I had a tear in my Achilles, not a full rupture and mm, kind of messed up some medial gastroc as well. And like that top range is so difficult to get back. And that, I, I think Achilles injuries are... Achilles and calf are the worst because <laughs> even yeah. if you look at the studies like even at slow 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 jogging the, the high amount of load going through the soleus whereas if you look at a hamstring injury someone tore their hamstring you can probably get them jogging really really quickly after a hamstring injury because they're not going to experience high loads in the hamstring until they are they're they're going to 70 80 percent of their running speed but right Achilles or calf, it's or Achilles or like anything down lower leg, it's going to be getting a lot of force going through it, even at the slow, even walking. So it's such a it's such a tricky area to not tricky to clean up, but it's you have to be you have to do things in the right way. I think you have to progress people in the right way. You will flare them up. So it's uh, that's why I love Achilles issues. Yeah, me too. And and I think you're you're spot on, and that is my goal. That's why I'm a little bit. Uh, conservative with those people is because my, I, I'm trying not to flare them up. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll use, like you said, you know, people hear, well, 12, per, you know, 12 times my body weight's going through my calf when I'm, I'm uh, while I run, I'm like, yes, that's true. But it's, it's not the whole time. It's not like the whole time your foot's on the ground. It's like this, you know, instant, quicker than that. Right. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to like train you to be able to, to lift 12 times your body weight. Um, and so then I'll explain like maybe impulse where we're just going to use time, uh, you know, time spent in this position to um, build up these abilities to tolerate peak forces and, and then go on to like actually getting these quick impulse type yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I'm with you. And when I said earlier, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think runners need or whatever I said about like plyometrics and stuff. I do. I think if every runner in the world trained plyos, if they, if they got rid of some of their junk volume and put in some plyos, like they would probably feel themselves running better and being more reactive. I just think the way, usually the way plyos are done for runners, it's so crappy. It's so poor and there's no queuing around foot contact or anything like that. But I do, I do think you're right. And I think actually like just 3d moving in all different directions, two feet, one foot, hopping bounding like i think i think that stuff is really good it's just it is just tricky to put in especially for a runner who doesn't want to stop running it's tricky (laughs) it's tricky yeah it's it's definitely tricky what about um what about knees not patellar tendon but what about like uh patellofemoral stuff um what's going on there figure that out first yeah the patellofemoral i mean (laughs) i do another like high school a lot of high school people the volleyball players and stuff, they come in with the patella femoral, mm. you know, and I do, I take a, I use a lens of, of biomechanics whenever pain's present, if pain's not present and and they have this kind of knee valgus type of presentation, then I'm not, you know, trying to make them shove their knees out as far as they can. Mm-hmm. But if pain's present and they do have this, then I, then I am going to look what's happening at the foot above and below. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, because at the end of the day, we know that, or it seems we know with a true patellofemoral syndrome that we, we got to find, we have to find a way to load that knee extensor mechanism. Yeah. And I, I'm not one to just go in there and bang, bang out things that are painful. Yeah. Uh, so I found a lot of su- success. These people, I really, 
I will start with their feet a lot of times and standing and see what's happening and just changing the shape of their foot, how that affects the angles above. And then we, and then we, we load. Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky. They're tricky ones because you need to load the quads. You need to make the quads stronger, but loading the quads is often the thing that hurts the knee. Yeah. So it's such a, it's like a paradox that you have to figure out. And I put up a video on this recently, actually, it was in, from the workshop in Sweden. There was a guy, uh, Rickard, actually, he was a really good guy, but he had like history of previous knee injuries. And I just, he was just a random guy up for a demo and I was just talking about a pronation drill and he saw how he had a bit of quad atrophy on that side. It wasn't, wasn't so strong. Um, and I was just, just trying to get him to like bend his knee and come into his midfoot and come back out again, but the quad wouldn't let go. It was just like fighting and gripping so hard. And I was trying to show people that like, this is an example of where people will talk about, okay, like pain can inhi- be, can inhibit the quad, but also at the same time, inhibition doesn't necessarily mean that it can't turn on. It, it can also mean it's on all the time. It can't let go. It can't load eccentrically. And that is genuinely what I see with so many, so many patellofemoral um, clients. And I think getting the quad to actually relax first and getting that knee bending and, and straightening in a very gentle, easy way that doesn't that doesn't flare them up, hopefully that actually gets the quad to experience like a gently centric, a gentle concentric. And then I find that loading it after that can be very, very useful. Yeah. yeah I think that's it's genius. And so even if it was like in some of the tendon research, I think it's Jill cook. She, she talks about um, how, you know, you get this cortical, you get these cortical changes and it's not that they can't do it she describes it as like a novice driver. It's just like an all or nothing. So like it turns on and turns off and you kind of lose this ability to, to, to grade that. Mm -hmm. Right. And so they're in, in the research just because they have to structure it, they'll use like a metronome or something. But this is where I find like creative people like you, I, I love the stuff you put out because I'm like, yeah, no, you're just finding a way to get them to like, you see that they're just doing this, they're gripping it. And you're just like, okay, well, let's let this go. And let's turn it back on, and also, and it, it's game changer. Yeah, I think it works well, and like you can even you 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 just push them more into it sometimes, where it's okay. Your your quad is just tense all the time. You see people with the patella, it's like pulled up and it's on, but their quad is really weak. So you just get them to like squeeze as hard as possible, just in a standing straight knee position. Squeeze your quad as hard as possible for ten seconds, yep. and then slowly take five seconds and like turn it off, and. You see when they turn it off or they let it go and it like jerks back on again without without them wanting to do it. So you can do some of that. Same with overcoming isometrics, like I mentioned earlier with the calf. You can get people to push in as hard as possible into like a, a fixed barbell or something like that in a calf raise. Or you can get them to build up zero, one out of 10, two out of 10, three out of 10. Eventually you get up to the overcoming where you push as hard as possible and then you build it back down. And I think like re-educating that max voluntary contraction like, but basically, I think that's probably what Jill is saying there. Like, there's they they have they just go from zero, they they have two gears, zero and ten. That's it. So re-educating that along yeah, the way is 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 yeah. is really cool and really helpful for people. Yeah, I what you just described, I I do I do a lot of that. Like, I'll count them up and count them down, and I I find that it's super helpful. Mm-hmm. That's probably a metronome, really, in their yeah, head. It's it like, yeah, <laughs> it's just giving them something to to focus on, something to follow along. It's a coordinated thing as well. Like you're 
yeah. telling them don't just slam don't slam and they're they're the people who are very tense a lot of the time as well they you see them you see them you see them do a bodyweight squat and they do a bodyweight squat and then you see them do you hand them like a one kilo um dumbbell and they and you say squat and they brace their everything in their whole body it's like yeah, you yeah, just yeah. went from from no weight to a hundred percent MVC, like with, and we all we did was add one kilo. So, right. must be something we can educate people along the way. But that is how people have been taught to just brace every muscle in your body as hard as possible for every single movement. Yeah, it's a good strategy. <laughs> it is until it's not. Um, <laughs> Jason, that was uh, that was brilliant. Very helpful for for me. Um, to, to chat i really enjoyed it man is there any t- anywhere you'd like people to go to find you or any last um remarks or a bit of wisdom for us uh, well no again first i really appreciate this opportunity and I, i'll always love chatting with you and feel like knowing you now on the internet world for a lifetime <laughs> um, but uh, as far as finding me i'm on instagram that's pretty much the only place i am these days uh, mm-hmm. at Dr. St. Clair DPT. And yeah. And that's that's it. it. Website? I do have a website. So my in-person business is, is Rise um, Sports PT. So my website is Rise Rehab SC, as in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Com. Do you do you have your own clinic or do you see people at the house? I see people at um at Jill's Clinic in the afternoon. Oh. Cool. Yeah, and then I see people here at the house, and then um, I see people at the track. Okay, <laughs> nice. You're spread out. Yeah, not in one spot. I like that. I like it. I like moving around a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I like having my own spot, and we I only see people here, but sometimes it can get a bit monotonous as well. Even though it's not monotonous for the people that are coming in because they're not there as often, but sometimes it's nice to change scenery. It kicks you out of your same old, same old kind of thing. Yeah, I between the virtual stuff here and then seeing people here, I definitely like the the change of pace. Yeah. I blame it on our son coming home. So then I, I leave, but I, I just really like to have a different spot. Yeah. It's nice. It's nice. To, uh, over COVID I was doing the virtual stuff and it was at home and I was living, I was living there. I was working there. I was doing everything there and it drove me insane after a while. Yeah. Yeah. During I COVID I was at a much bigger gym set. Uh, um, and it just it didn't end up working out because of COVID. But I sometimes miss that and think about going back in that setting. But mm-hmm. I also just kind of like being low key. Yeah, yeah. Um, and are most of your clients coming from referrals there, or are you getting people coming from online, or is it a bit mix of everything? Uh, most. So I'd say most of my online business is a combination of consults, and then I'll like I work with some run coaches and all end up kind of taking out people who've had like ongoing niggles and stuff and I'll end up doing an assessment and then taking over their strength side of things. Yeah. And then in person, it's, it's just all word of mouth. Yeah. Nice. 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 Okay, cool. Well, I'm looking forward to you being the track coach for the next, um, the next hundred meter sprint champion at the next Olympics. That's your next, uh, maybe not the next one, maybe the one after that. I'm, th- I'm going to go for, I'm going to do 800 is my, that's my sweet spot. The 800. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't, I actually don't know anything about the 800. I know nothing about it. seems like it's a the, disgusting event. It's terrible. And the, the but the, the fascinating part to me is that 
this comes into where I was talking about earlier with the people who, you know, you train them all the same, but people in an 800 are either coming up from a 400 or they're yeah. coming down from a mile. And so you can't train it or I don't think you should train them necessarily the same way. And so it's a fascinating race to me. Yeah. That I think there must, and there's a lot of time for tactics and thinking and stuff like that, where you probably don't get as much, well, you definitely don't get as much into 100. You probably get a little bit into 200, but then that 800 mark is like, there's so many ways to run that race yeah. and you could fuck yourself up like very quickly in it. That's it's very painful. Very painful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've heard the short, sharp stuff. Um, okay. Awesome, man. Thank All you so much. Thank you, David. Hey guys, it's Chris again. I really hope you enjoyed that episode with David and Jason. Lots of tasty little nuggets in there and plenty of information for us all to chew on. Hey, one more reminder to grab David's Achilles Rehab Program. Don't be fooled by the name. This is much more than an Achilles program. This is four phases of restorative training, hitting all aspects of the lower leg. Restoring foot function, building a lot of strength in the forefoot, mobilizing the heel and the midfoot, teaching people to load into their feet, teaching people to push through the floor, and then finally building us up through six different stages of plyometric workout. If you want your feet to move better, maybe you're trying to get out of some pain, or you just want to learn an absolute ton, make sure to hit the first link in David's bio and jump on board today. I'm looking forward to chatting to you guys in the next episode. Until then, be sure to like the podcast, share the podcast, and wherever you're listening to this, please give us a positive review. Chat to you guys soon. 